We pray that you would take away all those distractions that would keep us from listening to you, that you would tear down our defenses and and help us, Father, to truly engage with your word. Conform us, Father, to your image. Help us to be true followers of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight we are going to be thinking a little bit more about the church. Last Sunday we talked about what a church is. And tonight I'd like us to think a little bit about the mission-minded church. And um, if you were here last Sunday night, you'll know that I, I quoted fairly extensively and dealt fairly extensively with a, a statement that you may have read about called Dominus Jesus. Uh, it was a statement from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith of the Roman Catholic Church. And I think maybe a few folks here have backgrounds of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, this statement had a, an enormous impact on the news media a few weeks ago when it was reissued. And I took a look at this statement. And uh, I have to tell you again that I found a great deal in here to be excited about. I did last time, last Sunday, spend a fair amount of time talking about the one um, important disagreement that uh, I noted and that others of us had noted, which has to do with the, the doctrine of the church. I want to be clear about that. Uh, the doctrine of the church, in my opinion, uh, the statement, despite its many strengths, gets that significantly wrong, in my humble opinion. But tonight, we have no disagreement. In fact, I think this statement is unusually helpful in clarifying a few things about the mission of the, of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Catholic Church, in the fullest sense of that word, the worldwide movement of, of, of Jesus Christ across time and around the world. And I just want to read to you a few lines from this statement. And I think they're brilliantly written. This is the first line of the introduction. The Lord Jesus, that's where the title of the document comes from, Dominus Jesus, that's Latin for the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, before ascending into heaven, commanded his disciples to proclaim the gospel to the whole world and to baptize all nations. There's an extensive quote from the, the gospels and from Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And then this sentence. The church's universal mission is born from the command of Jesus Christ and is fulfilled in the course of the centuries in the proclamation of the mystery of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the mystery of the incarnation of the Son as saving event for all humanity. Paragraph 3. In the course of the centuries, the church has proclaimed and witnessed with fidelity to the gospel of Jesus. At the close of the second millennium, however, this mission is still far from complete. For that reason, St. Paul's words are now more relevant than ever. Preaching the gospel is not a reason for me to boast. It is a necessity laid on me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. This explains our particular attention to giving reasons for and supporting the evangelizing mission of the church, above all, in connection with the religious traditions of the world. 
The statement has a great deal to say about the place, the continuing central place of mission in the life of the church. And I, can't, I cannot affirm that uh, teaching more strongly. Uh, that is the calling of the church of Jesus Christ. Not the denominations, but the church, the global church, the Catholic church in the truest sense of that word. And so last week we saw how uh, Jesus is Dominus Noster Quoque. That was my first ever Latin sermon title. And it means our Lord too. As Protestants, as Evangelicals, we know the Lord Jesus as our Lord too. Dominus Noster Quoque. Well, tonight we're going to look at, a, at another important truth of the Christian life. And that is Dominus Aorum. That means their Lord too. In other words, the church exists for them, whoever them may be. We have been given a mission, and the church is to be mission-minded. So tonight we're going to think about being a mission-minded church. What does that mean? What does it require? We're going to do that by looking at Acts chapter 11. Let me get you to open the Bible. So Acts chapter 11, the uh, reference on the handout is incorrect. It's uh, page 1122, not 1109 through 1122. Acts chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 19 to 30, and then a couple of verses from over in chapter 13. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Let's, let's think a minute about this place, Antioch. This is uh, Syrian Antioch. There were two famous Antiochs in the ancient world. Pisidian Antioch, we're going to read about that later in the book of Acts. And Syrian Antioch. Let me get you to look at the very... If you have a pew Bible, look at the very back, the third map from the back... It's called the World of the New Testament. You'll see the Mediterranean Sea there. And if you look on the far right hand of the map, you'll see right halfway down the map, Antioch, just above the word Syria. That is Syrian Antioch. It's right on the far east coast of the Mediterranean Sea. All right? That's where we're talking about. Uh, that's the church that we're going to read about tonight. Now flip back to uh, Acts 11. I've never been to uh, Syrian Antioch, but uh, one of the members of our church has. His name is Brendan Kimbrough, and Brendan has been to Antioch. He went there with his uh, uh, group from the seminary where he attends, and, and he went to this place and, and looked around, and I talked to him today about it. It's a very interesting place. Um, you wouldn't believe, if you went to Antioch today, uh, that in the first century A.D., Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Over a half million people lived there. Uh, it was the third largest city after Rome and Alexandria. There was Antioch. And it was called the Queen of the East. It was such an important city. It was called the Queen of the East. Today, I'm told there are about 20,000 people who live in Antioch. So it's just a tiny shadow of its former glory. Uh, Antioch was an enormous city. It had a great deal of um, prominence in its region. It was literally where east met west. 
Uh, it was the crossroads culturally where people making their way from Asia would pass through Antioch on their way. Uh, it was the, the uh, economic and commercial hub for the eastern half of the Roman Empire and uh, had a great deal of importance economically and militarily. It was also famous for its sacred grove. There was a grove of trees there that actually played a place in um, Jewish history. Uh, it was uh, a place of refuge at the time of the Maccabean Revolt, and it shows up in the book of Maccabees. But uh, that same grove had become the center for all kind of immorality, probably because it was thought of as a refuge, and you could go there and the, the law couldn't get you. So uh, Antioch had developed quite a reputation as a place of immorality. Uh, even for the ancient world, it was thought of as an immoral place. Uh, there were a lot of Jews in Antioch, uh, uh, Antioch had been founded a few centuries earlier by uh, both Westerners and Jewish settlers. And so uh, the Jewish people had been there from the very beginning and had a lot of uh, rights and privileges. They apparently had their own Jewish governor in Antioch who was um, the one who ruled over them under the, the authority of the secular leadership. So it was a very, very important place. Well, that is the location for this church that we're going to read about tonight. Let's look again at verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Now just pause for a second. You see, the, the evangelists in the church to this point had been sharing the gospel all over the place, but primarily they had been sharing it with other Jews. The church was founded by Jewish people. And uh, including the Lord himself. And so they had been sharing this message to Jews uh, as they went along. In verse 20, though, something happened. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. That's not a nationality. Uh, that's a cultural expression. These were, these were the Hellenists, people who were influenced by, by Greek culture, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, this is where the mission-mindedness of the church was born. It's actually here in Antioch where the church became Catholic. Because it was in Antioch where the, the universalness of the church began to come into focus. Now, it had been hinted at already. If you know the book of Acts, chapter 10 is actually the story of this vision that St. Peter had. Uh, Peter had a vision of this sheet that came to happen to him a couple of times. Uh, he had this in his vision, a sheet that came down. And uh, the voice from heaven told him to take and eat the unclean animals that were in the sheet. And Peter, being a good Jew, said, well, I've never done that. I, I, I'm not going to eat unclean food. No, Lord. And uh, that's never something you should tell the Lord. No, Lord. Uh, because the Lord said... I have declared these things clean. What I've declared clean, you mustn't declare unclean. Now take and eat. And Peter took and ate. And with his doing that, all the dietary laws by the command of God himself were set aside for the Gentile believers. For the new church, it became clear that going forward, the church would not be defined by dietary laws. But actually, Peter realized that it was much more than that. Because the Holy Spirit helped him to understand that God was getting ready to do the unimaginable. 
God was getting ready to take this gospel news that had changed Peter's life and the apostles' lives and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people's lives, thousands of Jews on the first Pentecost that had changed countless lives. That gospel, which had been aimed at Jewish people, was about to be given to the whole world. And Acts chapter 10 and 11 includes a little glimpse into that with the story of Cornelius, who was uh, the first Gentile that we read about explicitly in the post-Pentecost church who came into uh, full saving faith. Other little hints, uh, Philip's ministry and other little hints along the way. But here Cornelius stands at the crossroads as the church uh, begins this new worldwide mission. Now, I want you to notice, as we think about this mission-minded church, that it is born out of suffering. Now, that's a little surprising to me, but if you look at verse 19, you'll see that the church in Antioch was begun by people who had been scattered by persecution. Now, the word there translated persecution is actually a Greek word, thlipsis, and it's a, it's a multi- um, meaning word. It's, it's translated in different ways. Let me get you to flip over to Acts chapter 7 verse 10 just to see one place. Acts chapter 7 verse 10. Here is uh, Stephen who was martyred at uh, the end of this chapter. And uh, Stephen is preaching a sermon. Uh, the, the apostles were apparently great preachers. And Stephen was preaching this amazing sermon in front of the Sanhedrin. And he's confronting them about uh, the covenant faithfulness of God over the centuries. And he brings up the story of Joseph. This is what he says. The patriarch, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him, verse 10, and received him from all his flipsis. The word translated troubles is the same Greek word, flipsis. It means hardship, suffering, difficulties, challenges persecution. Let me get you to look in the other direction. Flip over to uh, Revelation chapter 7. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Here's a word you might have heard thrown around these days. If you look at Revelation chapter 7 verse 14, John is being given a vision of the the multitude in heaven. It's this enormous crowd worshiping God. He's given the privilege of hearing them as they worship. Uh, One of the elders who's there, one of these heavenly elders, asked John who these people are. And in verse 14, John says, Sir, you know. And then this elder says, These are they who have come out of the great flipsis. Tribulation. This is the mega flipsis. But here is the great suffering. Alright, so flip back to uh, Acts chapter 11. The church is born out of flipsis. The church is brought into existence and to this day continues to grow through flipsis, through suffering, through hardship, and yes, through persecution. In fact, the mission-minded church is always born out of suffering. You know, if you find a comfortable, laid-back church that doesn't know anything about suffering doesn't know anything about the reality of persecution in the world, I can almost guarantee you it's not going to be mission-minded. It's not going to be mission-minded. It, uh, it takes suffering to make the church mission-minded. Uh, let me give you one uh, contemporary 
example of that. Uh, some of you will know about the amazing things that have happened in the Church of China. Uh, a member of this congregation who's not here tonight uh, visited China just, uh, I guess it was last year, and he came back with a report about what he'd seen. It was, it was really amazing. But he told this story that uh, a couple of generations ago, the Chinese government decided to wipe out the Christian church in China. And they had the clever idea of expelling all of the Western missionaries because they were convinced that it was Western, Western missionaries and West, Western missionary money that was keeping the church alive in China. And so all the missionaries, thousands of them, were expelled. They were forced out of the country. You may have heard about that. Well, two interesting things have happened that we've just really become aware of. First thing that happened, and this was confirmed to me by a longtime missionary who was active in missionary circles at that time, back in the, when this originally happened. Uh, all these missionaries who were expelled from China, guess what? They went to other places. They actually took the same gospel, the same good news that they had been teaching and proclaiming to the Chinese people. They took that same message to countless other places. All across Asia, all across South America and Africa, around the world, these same missionaries, people whom God had called to serve Him in mission work, they took that same saving message and the gospel went forward. Uh, people heard about the good news of Jesus Christ through those same Western missionaries who had been expelled. But the second thing that happened is even more remarkable. Because just recently, in response to the new openness in China, because they want to get Western money, uh, people have been allowed to go back into China, and they've been snooping around and discovered that, lo and behold, when the Western missionaries were forced out of China, the Holy Spirit did something completely unexpected. Because the Lord raised up countless Chinese missionaries. Men and women from China, boys and girls from China, who preached the gospel. My, our friend uh, who went to the uh, congregation in China told me that this particular congregation was led by a 12-year-old boy. Uh, he was gifted to preach, and he was preaching the gospel. And the, his church was much bigger than ours. Well, you know what? The Lord doesn't need Western missionaries. He uses us. Praise God. He, we have a place to play, something to do. He uses us, but He doesn't need us. He is at work in His world. And the surprising thing is, mission-mindedness grows, emerges from that kind of suffering, from hardship. To this day in China, there's no such thing as a nominal Christian. There aren't people in China who, who go to church because it's the socially acceptable thing to do. In China to this day, you take your life in your own hands when you become a follower of Jesus. It has an enormous price tag. And yet countless people are willing to do that. Because their Christianity is rooted in suffering. They know what it means to suffer for Jesus. And that's the mission-minded church. Now, the, the missionaries that you bump into from China, people who've been raised in this mission-minded church atmosphere in China, they are bold for Christ. Now, they're not stupid. They've learned how to stay off the police radar pretty well. But they are bold for Christ. They don't hem and haw about the gospel. 
They've learned creative ways to share the gospel. And that's happening all over the world. This little uh, congregation knows uh, uh, a man we call Tariq in Egypt. Tariq is operating in a country where it is illegal to evangelize. And in that particular country, you can be taken from your family, beaten, and possibly killed by the official authorities or by the official authorities looking the other way while the Muslim Brotherhood does it. And Tariq shares the gospel and he has seen countless people. And I've met them myself. I've met them myself. I know men and women who have been raised in that mission-minded church, born out of suffering. Well, the mission-minded church always emerges from that kind of suffering. I mean, may God deliver us from comfortable middle-class Episcopalianism, where we simply kick back and we focus on ourselves. Because the mission-minded church, born out of suffering, always focuses on others, on them. It's a little bit like this. As the Lord pours out His love upon us, and as we are challenged and, and pushed, and the word for flipsis literally means to apply pressure. Doctors use it to describe pressure being applied to blood vessels. As that pressure is applied to the church, the more and more pressure that's applied, it's like the diamond emerging. The church, under pressure, becomes more and more and more strong and precious. And the love that God pours out upon us, which we share and which we try to show one another in all kinds of concrete ways, that love begins to overflow from us to the world around us. That's what it means to be a mission-minded church. And it's always born out of that, that suffering. Now, the mission-minded church, we learned from Antioch, also uh, needed encouragement. Look at uh, verse 22. News of the church at Antioch reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Now, that's the mother church. That's where Peter was at the time. That's where James was and all the, most of the apostles. So the church sent Barnabas to Antioch. Now, we met Barnabas earlier in the book of Acts. Barnabas is his Greek name. Or, sorry, it's his, uh, it's his nickname. And uh, it means son of encouragement. It's not a Greek word. It's, his, uh, it's a nickname given to him, and it means son of encouragement. The church sent Barnabas to Syrian Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad, and he did what any son of encouragement would do. He encouraged them. He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. The mission-minded church needs encouragement. Now, the encouragement that the church needs is more than a slap on the back. You know, uh, I guess when we hear the encouragement, we picture uh, someone just all smiles. You know, it's going to be all right. Come on, go, get out there and do it. A, a coach kind of character. And I guess Barnabas might have had that kind of temperament. But it's not talking about that kind of encouragement. If you look a little further, look at what this encourager did. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. You see, the encouragement that is important from Barnabas is not the backslapping kind of encouragement. It's the Bible kind of encouragement. It's, it's the teaching of the gospel. 
That's the kind of encouragement that Barnabas uh, used. He was apparently a great preacher. It's mentioned uh, several times that Barnabas was a great preacher. Uh, He's actually called Zeus, I think, at one point. He must have been a very interesting guy because he could preach the gospel. And here was Saul. Now, you know, Saul, of course, was the one who was holding the cloaks for uh, those who stoned Stephen back in uh, Acts chapter 8, the very beginning. It's Saul. So Saul was a man with a history who um, had betrayed the church, who, had, who had, had been a persecutor of the church. Well, Barnabas goes and gets him because Saul has had a conversion. Uh, Saul has literally had his eyes opened. He was blind for a time, and the Lord literally let him see. And Saul, the persecutor of the church, becomes uh, Paul, the discipler of the church, the great apostle to the Gentiles. And so Barnabas and Saul come back, and for a year they uh, meet with the church, and they taught a great number of people. I mean, just picture an adult Bible class with uh, the co-teachers Barnabas and Saul. And uh, there's Barnabas, the, the great, great proclaimer, the encourager. There is uh, Saul, who, who wrote, apart from Luke, the biggest part of the New Testament, uh, who, is, who is teaching and proclaiming the encouraging words of the gospel, the challenging, encouraging, uh, comforting, uh, exhorting words of the Bible. That was the encouragement the church needed. The church always needs that kind of encouragement. See, on our own, we're naturally not mission-minded. On our own, we're naturally a little huddle. And the littler the huddle, often the better. And the more the huddle is exactly like me, with all of my prejudices, the more comfortable I am in the huddle. It takes the encouragement of the Word of God to help us to begin to look beyond that. That's what happens to Peter. It takes that kind of encouragement to realize that we are called to be mission-minded. The the word for uh, encouragement is parakaleo. And uh, you may know in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is called the Paraclete, the the encourager. Uh, Ultimate encouragement comes to us from the Holy Spirit. The application of the Bible uh, to our lives to transform sinners like you and me into the likeness of Christ. Well, the church needs that kind of encouragement to become what we're meant to be, to be mission-minded. We need encouragement. That was true for Antioch, and it's true for us as well. Now, if you look at uh, chapter 11, verse 21, you'll see what happens when a church born of suffering is encouraged. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. See, being mission-minded is more than you and me gritting our teeth and saying, we're going to do this. It's actually where the Lord's almighty, sovereign hand becomes involved in our work in ministry. I mean, we've seen little glimpses of it here at Trinity. When our sovereign God begins to do things that you and I could never do. Opening doors. Giving us opportunities. Giving us a desire. Giving us unity in the gospel. Uh, transforming a bunch of ununified, disoriented, rebellious sinners 
into a family that loves each other and that loves other people for the sake of Christ. Well, that's what happens when encouragement comes from the Bible. That's what happens when a church born of suffering interacts with the Word of God. The Lord's hand is with us. And what happens without fail is people believe and turn to the Lord. We need to have confidence in that. We need to have confidence in, in the power of God today to bring people to Himself. I think we've, we've let go of that idea that God can and will use even us to bring people, even a lot of people, to know Him. Now, we're not in the numbers business. That's not our concern. But He is. And without fail, over and over again, we'll see that as, as people take their encouragement from God's Word and aim to be that kind of church, He uses them. We'll see. So the mission-minded church is born of suffering. The mission-minded church needs encouragement. Thirdly, the mission-minded church is authentically Christian. Look at 26, the second half of uh, verse 26. Last sentence. The disciples were called Christians for the very first time at Antioch. You know, we use the word Christian these days uh, as uh, really a cultural description as much as anything else. It, it's the answer to a, a, a box you tick on an application form or on a census form where you express sort of your cultural affiliation. But actually the word Christian, Christianos, is the Greek word here. Christian was an expression describing the disciples that emerged as they became mission-minded. Disciple is a follower of Jesus. That's a good thing. When disciples become mission-minded, as they grow through encouragement to embrace their mission-mindedness, That's when we become most authentically Christian. Because you see, the word Christian doesn't define a denomination or an institution or a structure. It means little Christ. It was probably not a compliment. Uh, Most likely, scholars think it it was put together by the pagans. You little Christ, you're little, diminutive, unimportant, you're little. Well, actually... Being a little Christ is our greatest aspiration. Uh, To have His love for our church, for one another, and for the world is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's when we have that mission-mindedness that we become most authentically little Christ's. Because that's what Jesus came to do, to seek and to save the lost. It's when we're being most obedient to Him. When we begin to make His priority our priority. I've got a cross-reference here. If you look at Acts chapter 15, I've I've referenced most of the chapter here. Uh, It was the council of Jerusalem. The council of Jerusalem was called in response to Antioch. The church didn't know what to do about Antioch. It was growing, it was growing, and more and more people were coming to belief. They were turning to Jesus. It says people came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching that you've got to be circumcised. So the whole council of Jerusalem rather, is a response to what was going on in Antioch. If you heard about the council of Jerusalem, rather, it was because of Antioch that they had it. 
And what came out of the Council of Jerusalem, if you look at the very end of the story, you could, the whole story is fascinating. This conflict between Peter and, and Paul. But if you look down to verse 30, this is what finally came out of it. It says, The men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter that's quoted. The people read it and were glad for its what encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to do what? To encourage and to strengthen the brothers. The church, the Christian church, at this council, in response to Antioch, became truly Catholic, truly universal. That's what Catholic means. It's not a denomination. It's an adjective. It's the universal church. And it was at, it was at Jerusalem because of Antioch that that happens. So if you look at uh, chapter 15, verse 28, this is what uh, James in the letter said, that the council said. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. That's, that's what to be Christian came to mean. It was, it was to be washed in the blood of Christ. That's what we read about at the beginning of the letter. Verse 26. It's about being part of this worldwide movement. And they couldn't believe that the, uh, the mother church in Jerusalem, uh, which was so Jewish, had sent them these greetings and this simple call to holiness. There's no sense of arrogance. There's no sense of lording it over them. You'll do well to avoid these things. And I would say Amen. But the call is away from defining Christianity in terms of legalism and do's and don'ts, but instead to a relationship with the risen Christ. And that's what it means to be authentically Christian, to have that breadth of mission vision. That's what it means to be a Christian. Finally, the mission-minded church is a sending church. Flip over to Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. What a, what a hodgepodge. Different cultures, skin colors, languages, economic backgrounds. Menaean was apparently brought up with the king, the Tetrarch. Simeon, called black, was probably an African. And there was Saul, the misfit, the, the traitor who had persecuted the church. He was a man with a history. That diverse group of people. That's a mission-minded church. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. A mission-minded church is a sending church. Uh, next Sunday night, I hope that uh, Terrell and Amber will be here. Uh, because if you remember a few months ago, we did something like this for Christina when Christina was going to the mission field. Uh, we all gathered around her right in this very spot. 
And I don't know about you all who are here, but I was, I was blown away by that. Just to, to be with this brave young woman who was going in response to the Lord's call halfway around the world. And we were able to send her. This little church in the middle of North Dallas. Nothing impressive in the eyes of the world. But we were a part of sending a servant to bring good news. That was an awesome thing. And I hope we get to do it again next Sunday night. I'll be, I'll be really hoping that they're free to come. Because it's, it's something that is such a privilege to do that. You know, it really does take a work of the Holy Spirit to make sinners like you and me care about the people around us. I mean, I, you know, I live here in North Dallas, and you know, my whole life is basically within the, I don't know, 10 square miles around here. That's where I live 99% of my life. But you know what? It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to make me care intensely about the people I bump into. We've got ministries over here. I bump into people at the grocery store. I see them on the, on the uh, highway driving here and there. I see them in, in uh, all kinds of contexts. It takes the Holy Spirit to make a sinner like me care about people in my community. And I think it's probably fair to say that's true for you. We're naturally so self-absorbed. We're naturally so inward-looking. It takes the Holy Spirit to make us care, especially people who are different from us. Right here in our community. I'm so grateful that God has been working on our little church and helping us slowly to develop this mission mindset. And there's some exciting things He's doing in our little church because of it. That's a miracle. But I'll tell you what. um, An even bigger miracle is to make a group of people here in North Dallas care about strangers on the other side of the world whom we will never meet who speak a a different language, who have a different culture, who may hate us, to make us care about them? Well, that, that really is a miracle. That's like parting the Red Sea. To make us really care? To make someone like Christina be willing to leave her family and her friends to go with a message that they probably don't want to hear, that, that's an amazing thing. Well, you know, I pray that more and more we'll be ascending church. I mean, talk about adult education. We're going to have our adult Bible class tonight. And Warren uh, will be leading us again, looking uh, at the, uh, the Bible, the overview of the Bible. Well, this ascending church here in Antioch, they sent their very best they, they sent their, uh, their leaders. They sent Paul. They sent Barnabas. What if one day God tells us to send Warren? Wow. It sort of gets personal. We want Warren to stay here. And maybe he will. But, you know, if God wants him to go, we have to let him go. In fact, we have to send him. And that's true for, for uh, Christina. That's true for uh, Matthew. Matthew's going, uh, God willing, to serve the Lord down in Indonesia next year. And Terrell and Amber going to Uganda. Now, I was talking to Matthew about life on the mission field. Uh, Matthew was raised in Spain uh, with 
uh, missionary parents who, uh, he said, what was the denomination of your parents? He said, well, they were sort of Baptists. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you know, in the mission field, denominations don't matter very much. I was thinking about that last night, getting ready for today, and I thought, you know, on the mission field, denominations don't matter very much. And guess what? We live on the mission field. We may not think about it, but we do. We live on the mission field. And denominations don't matter very much. Roman Catholic, Baptist, Anglican, Episcopalian, Presbyterian. Denominations don't matter very much. In the big scheme of things, who cares? What does matter is that we're a part of God's worldwide Catholic movement, bringing people to Jesus, reaching out to them in love. That's what we want to be about. That's what a mission-minded church is all about. Because He is their Lord too. Whoever them is, He's their Lord too. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Gracious God, we pray that You would use the reality of our suffering and hardship for good. We pray, gracious God, that even our most challenging difficulties will be transformed by You into our greatest blessings. We pray that You would push us out of our, our comfortable surroundings, that You would challenge us, Father. That would, you, you would use even the sinful persecution of, of other people uh, to, to bring us, Father, closer to You and, and more faithful to You. We pray, Father, that You would give us the encouragement of Your Word, that You would send pastors and teachers and Christian friends who will encourage us from Your Word, that You would send the Holy Spirit ultimately to apply Your Word to our hearts, to make us care about the people around us. We pray, Father, that we would grow as authentically Christian, little Christ's, It's a a privilege beyond our ability to reckon to be so associated with your Son and his worldwide mission. And Father, we pray that you would make us a sending church, that every one of us, Father, would see ourselves as as sent people. As we leave this service tonight, as we go to Chili's, as we go home, as we interact with family and friends and colleagues and fellow students and co-workers in every way, Father, that you would help us to see ourselves as those who are sent commissioned by You with good news. And Father, please raise up among us by Your Spirit those who are specially called uh, to go as Paul and Barnabas did to take the message around the world. And Father, uh, please help us to do this for the sake of Your Son. In His name we pray. Amen.